My name is Clancy Emerson. I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience. Well, he spoke. I thought I'd lead. <clears throat> the, uh, I'm glad to be here this afternoon, glad to be a part of Alcoholics Anonymous, glad to be at this convention once more, and I'm uh, glad to see a lot of old friends and new friends. See my friend Les down here, he, uh, some of you don't know Les, Les is kind of a historic figure. He started this convention in 1967, and uh, don't, anyone could have done it. Once they had a CPA come in and look at the books, he moved to Arizona. <laughs> but he had a man named Tom O'Neill, which really old people remember, started the intergroup meeting here in 1962. I came up here in 1962 as the first speaker of a large meeting in Al of Alcoholics Anonymous in Las Vegas. And we met in the city hall, did we not? And uh, we thought we were really slick. We had about 60 people. It looked like we were just on the cutting edge of the wave. Now they got that many people working on coffee here. You know, it's just ridiculous. But Alcoholics Anonymous has been addressed, has been organized for many years, as we know, to address the problem of alcoholism. And it's an interesting thing, because most of us forget to remember that we are, uh, we are extremely fortunate people. We are living in a tiny window in the history of alcoholism where there's been any place to go. You know, alcohol traces have been found well, they thought 5,000 years, but then a couple years ago they found a, a dish in a cave in South Africa that was 7,000 years old that had some alcohol on it. And over the years, whenever there's been written histories of alcohol use, there's always, in addition to that, some mention made of people who react differently to alcohol, to get, who act oddly. At one time they thought they were possessed by devils that put them to death, and they'd scourge them and flay them and lock them up and do everything they could to torture them, try to torture the d devils out of them, exercise them. And this has been going on, there's been interesting theories over the years, locked up. I have a book home, it's an interesting picture in it. It's, uh, it shows a group of coffins, looks like coffins, standing up. But there's, there's a face coming out of each one. You can see all these coffins, the face, and the back of a man that says, Dr. Renault addresses a group of French alcoholics. Uh, and that was the state of the art in 1867, I guess. And even in the, the, the major cure of the, this century up to Alcoholics Anonymous was the Keeley cure, where they took you and gave you alcohol with dope in it that made you sick, so you'd throw up, and eventually you don't want any more to drink from that place, so you quit. And, uh, but they never had any cures. They've had all sorts of different approaches in this century. They thought, they've come to believe that maybe, maybe it's emotional. So there's been a lot of work spent on the emotions of heavy drinkers. There's been a lot of work spent on getting them sober and making them realize what they're doing to themselves. There's been some work on their spiritual conditions. There have been homes set up, for example, for, for just spiritual growth. As we know, we've jumped out of the Oxford movement, and many people thought the Oxford movement provided sobriety, but it didn't. Dr. Bob Smith was the leading Oxford group member, was drunk all along, and on and on. There never has been any answer. Even in my lifetime, and I'm old, but I'm not that old, in my lifetime, after 7,000 years, when I was a little boy, there was no place for drinkers to go. You might go to the Keeley Cure, or you might be locked up. And we all know that famous story about 
1931, family in New York had a son who was about 35, and he, had, he seemed to drink a lot because he was nervous, because of emotional problems. And they knew that if they could treat his emotions, he would be all right again. So they found the best doctor in the world and sent him to this guy in Switzerland, Dr. Jung. And Dr. Jung knew he could help him, put him in his hospital, worked on him every day for a year. At the end of a year, he said, Roland, I think that uh, you understand the nature of your conflicts, the nature of your problems. We're sending you home. Dr. Roland said, thank you very much, and went to Paris, visited some friends of his family, and they toasted his success. Within a few days again, Roland was face down in his own vomit and almost uh, dying. And they had a lot of money. Nobody else had money except the very wealthy in the Depression, but they did. So they sent some new men to pick him up, take him back to the doctor with a blank check. And at that moment, our existence hung by a thread. But something very fortunate happened. The doctor turned him away. And his, he said, why, doctor? Why are you turning me away? He said, Roland, I think I've made a mistake. I think I'm afraid I misdiagnosed your case. I thought you had deep emotional problems that I could help you with. I see now that you are what is known as an alcoholic. And there is no known successful treatment for that condition in the world today at any cost. And this was 1932, not that long ago. And he said, what does this mean, doctor? The doctor said, well, it means in a sense that you must keep yourself confined voluntarily or involuntarily for the rest of your life. Or you almost certainly will intermittently drink until you die or go mad. Now, who wants to hear that? He said, is, is there anything, is there any other possible alternative? He said, yes, there's been some mention in the literature about uh, an involuntary psychological reversion within oneself. I've never seen a case, but I've read about it in the literature. They call it some sort of a spiritual experience. He said, but the chances are so rare, it's almost impossible. And so Roland came home. He didn't stop to toast anybody in Paris this time. And he got on that ship and came back to New York. And it's always been my belief, and many people's belief, that he did something on that ship that all of us must eventually do if we were to stay here. <clears throat> he somehow surrendered to the fact he couldn't beat it. He surrendered to the fact that he was lost, that he was hopeless. And he came back, and he'd been a vestryman in the Presbyterian Church, so he knew going to church didn't help. But there was this Oxford group going on, and some of you may not know what it was. It was a 1930s equivalent kind of est, kind of for a, not, not lower class people, but for a pretty good type of people. Est went for psychological insights. This was for spiritual insights. They would sit together and discuss spirituality and God's will. So I thought maybe they'll go there for a while. And he went there for a little while. And as he wrote later, I didn't expect to stay sober, but I, I wanted to stay sober a while so my parents would have a pleasant memory of me when I died drunk. And he somehow stayed sober. And as a result of that, his family rewarded him by sending him to Vermont for a little vacation. And he happened to go at just, if he'd gone two weeks earlier, we wouldn't be here. If he'd gone two weeks later, we wouldn't be here. It's, it's just scary. He went there, and the first week he was there, some of his old friends from the area came over and said, our mutual friend, Ebby, is back in trouble drinking. Could you help him? He said, I'll try. And so they brought, he went to see Ebby, and Ebby didn't want to hear. Come on, come on, Roland, get off of that. You used to drink, you don't sleep. Okay. But the next week, Ebby drove his car into a house, dead drunk, and, and he was being sentenced to the penitentiary. <coughs> and 
And since Roland was there, one of his friends came over and said, Roland, plead with the judge. You know the judge, you know, and your father's a good friend of his. So we went over there and pleaded with the judge and got the judge to re release him to him. If he hadn't been there, he never would have been released. But he said, you got to take him out of Vermont. So he took him back to New York and he stuck him in the mission in Broadway and uh, got him in the Oxford group, which is now what? So after a few months, in the Oxford group, one of the things you had to do once you got your spiritual basic training, you had to go out and testify to somebody. And nobody wanted to testify to anybody. And I don't want to testify. Ebby didn't want to testify to anybody. I'm not going to testify. Do you want to go back to Vermont, go to the pen? No. I believe I'll testify. <laughs> and he thought, who could I testify to that will not embarrass me? And by a, he just happened to think, Another childhood friend of his was even goofier than he was, the last he heard. A bum, he couldn't hold a job, living off his wife, a real mooch. So he looked him up, a guy named Bill Wilson, and made an appointment to go see him. And you know, we all have read that, our literature, what Bill writes. And Abby came to the door, he looked clean and fine, and said, how are you doing? He said, I've got religion, and that appalled me. And we sat at the table and talked, and then Abby left. Abby had a little different version of that. I heard him talk a number of years ago, and much of it was true, but then he sat at the table. Bill Wilson kept ostentatiously drinking while Ebby talked to him. Is that so, Ebby? <laughs> Very interesting. <laughs> and this made Ebby upset. So he left, and this is in our book, but actually I guarantee it's true. He came back about three days later with the Oxford group closer. <laughs> Mr. Wilson, brrr. And Bill Wilson reacted like any normal alcoholic would. He went out in one of the damnedest drunks of his life. Pay for the Oxford group, you know. <laughs> and he wandered around Manhattan drunk, and he wound up on this mission where Ebby was supposed to be, and Ebby wasn't there, but he, he gave a short sermon anyway just to help him out, and staggered on down the street and wound up in the hospital. Well, was called Ebby, said, Bill's in the hospital. He went over there and said, you've got to surrender. You've got to turn over to God. I can't do that. I don't that crap. In the middle of that night, it turned out that he was the one in a million or maybe a billion who had a true spiritual experience. And he had a spiritual experience, as he said later in the middle of the night, there was light in the room and a wind blowing through my ears and he didn't know what it was, he thought he was going crazy. And he told the doctor the next morning, the doctor said, I don't know what it is, Bill, but hang on to it. And so he left there and went to the Oxford group. Now you think, why, Rob, why would we need this chain of Roland and Dr. Ewell and Ebby and all this stuff? Bill would have the spiritual experience anyway, maybe, and go to the, but people who had the spiritual experiences never went to the Oxford group. They went to church, and they never were seen again. I mean, just worked in church work. But he thought he had some sort of a mission to save alcoholics. And eventually, as we know, he met a doctor in Akron, Ohio, after a failed business trip, and they started, and they began to be formed, and over the years it was formed. Struggled a great deal. And so now, since 19, June 10th, 1935, we've had a viable organization called Alcoholics Anonymous which helps people at no charge, which goes to the wall for people when it operates right, which has a series of principles that bring about recovery. And yet, most alcoholics can't accept it, are still looking for an archaic answer, something that goes back to the year 500, but you're trying to do it then. Even in my lifetime, I got sober in 1958. And in 1960, I got a job in a medical corporation as a little writer. That's where I meant less. And uh, I worked there writing ads for electro uh, 
ultrasonic medicine and uh, cardiographs and so on. But I got a chance to read literature. And I, in the 1960s, just in my sobriety, for example, about 1962, they had the first full-page ad that I know of in a medical journal <coughs> offering doctors a treatment for alcoholism. And they said, doctors, at last you can treat your alcoholics without side effects. Cure them of this dreadful disease. I remember reading that thinking, Jesus, have I missed this? <laughs> and they had a, the, the name sounded so free. It was called Librium. <laughs> I thought if I only could have held on a few more years, I would have got some of that, and I could have been somebody. But uh, about a year later, the first survivors of that treatment start coming back to AA. <laughs> I'm going to get my cake if I can find the podium. <laughs> then from there, I moved to a television station, radio station, and then to television. So by 1965, let me tell you, just this has to do with nothing. It's just a cruel aside I want to help you with. 1965, I was working in television. I was pretty slick by now. I had a mouthful of teeth, smiling. My family and I reunited at an international convention in Toronto. I dropped my family off in Wisconsin from Los Angeles and came up to Detroit, caught a train into Toronto. My friend Les Eccles and my friend Mary Regan, I didn't know at the time, but they knew I was coming in the train. They didn't know when, so they came down every train from Detroit all day long in the rain. And I got off the train finally at night. I looked up there, and there was Mary and Les going. And I realized what they had done. And I just instinctively walked right by him and said, oh, hi, Les. <laughs> That's kept me warm a lot of nights. <laughs> But uh, in 1965, there was a new cure. It was from the Schick Shadel Institute up in Seattle. That, um, what is that stuff? Uh, uh, enzymes. Was it enzymes? I don't think, I don't know. Something like enzymes. But they had a guy in our station, I read in our daily project, man talking on how alcoholics can drink again. And I thought, Jesus, I want to go and watch this, you know. <laughs> I stood behind the camera, and there was this guy there, and he was the director of the Six Shadel Institute of Recovering Drinking. And he said, they say alcoholics cannot drink again. But I'll tell you, with our treatment, they can. And he picked up a martini on the air and went. <laughs> and I didn't even want it, but my tongue went. <laughs> <clears throat> I thought, I'll be damned. But about three weeks later, apparently his enzymes didn't kick in quite in time. <laughs> and they put him in a padded cell in Schick Shadel. <laughs> and the next month they had another breakthrough. Well, I guess you can't drink after all, but we can cure you in a week. Uh, in the late 1960s, there was a treatment outside of, Minneapolis, oh, outside of Los Angeles. That was wonderful. It was at a Seventh-day Adventist hospital, White Memorial. And a big article in the paper, wonderful article, about how they could cure alcoholics in a week, sometimes a little more, but they could cure it. And, and I couldn't believe this. I read it. And what they did in this, they're dead against drinking, so they hate drinking, but they realize it's a problem. So they took one of their wards and turned it into a bar. 
a regular bar with a bartender, with a back bar. And some mope would get in there first thing in the morning. You want a drink, partner? What do you got? Is that like Keely cures that drugs? Nope, regular stuff. What do you want? You promise? Yeah. Give me some, give me some bourbon. Okay, pal. Take them. Had a little wire on the glass so they couldn't steal it, I guess. You know, just... Hey, you Seventh-day Adventists know how to treat drunks, don't you? Have a few drinks, go back to the ward, eat. Next morning, come in, have a few more drinks. Next morning, come in, have a few more drinks. What a system. But then, one morning, come in, get a drink. And as you drank, they'd shoot the electric shock through that cord. <coughs> Hold the ice next time, Fred. Maybe they give you a drink without it. Mm. That's more like it, Jesus. <laughs> and from then on, the poor guy just was like a fawn in a forest fire, you know. <laughs> uh, just terrible. <laughs> Finally, he came in one morning and said, you want a drink? No, I don't believe I do. <clears throat> Three days in a row of that, and you're recovered, and they released him. And they had about a 95% recovery rate. Eventually, somebody did a study up, study of a follow-up. They discovered most of them never got beyond the first bar that didn't have a wire on the glass. <laughs> so that cure went down the toilet. In the early 1970s, some of you may remember this, the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica put out a big story, Alcoholics Can Drink Again. And there was a little demure, except those that can't. But mostly they can't. And they, this made the front pages of papers all over the world. And everybody, you know, was two years later finding some doctor in North Carolina did a follow-up, and nearly all of them were drunk and some of them were dead. And I knew a guy in the Rand Corps said, how in the world did you do your follow-up? You kept saying you were doing your follow-up. He said, Jesus, I don't understand that. We called him every month. You know, you just see some guy said, yeah, still doing okay. <laughs> There's a doctor down in Amarillo, or Albuquerque. He made a lot of ink in the papers because I used to read these things with zeal. He would, they would bring you to his office drunk, and he would take movies of you drunk. Then, the next time you felt like drinking, you'd go to his office, watch the movies, and think, boy, I don't want to be like that, Christ. It turns out most people didn't want to go to the movies on the way to get drunk. You know? <laughs> but a little while, they just, again and again, people try to deal with the problem of drinkers by getting them to stop drinking. And then also, the spiritual program began to work. In the 1940s and 50s, they began establishing homes for alcoholic clergymen. And uh, they didn't seem to have much success. They didn't have, uh, they had some, in the late 1960s, I suppose, up to then they had sanitariums and they got, AA used to be full of what they called sanitarium bums who would just get drunk and go to sanitarium, come back and go to sanitarium. And all this time, Alcoholics Anonymous continued to grow and flourish and people would come and uh, leave and come and leave and some stay. And an absolute bafflement to the people outside, why, how A can work, because I've been there, and there's nothing there that works. 
and the people inside wonder why those people outside can't see this. You know, they talk about perception, really the perception of the same things completely differing. Uh, and we've often talked about this in AA, that alcoholism truly is a disease of perception. In fact, that's one of the great aspects of being an alcoholic. Alcohol can, what it does for me, it alters my perception of reality. That is one of the, it's an interesting thing, in the second step they talk about that I have to come to realize that a power greater than myself will restore me to sanity. And that's a matter of perception. What is sanity? Who knows what sanity is? You can read 10 psychiatric textbooks that have different dis definitions of, in of sanity. But yet, oddly enough, insanity is easily defined. Insanity is quite easy to define. Psychosis is quite easy. That's when, not caused by brain damage, but caused by conflict. Sufficient conflict takes place in the brain so that to, main, to just protect itself, the brain reduces the conflict by changing its perception of reality. It makes things look different to reduce that conflict. For example, sometimes in, when people have a great deal of conflict, they can't stand it, they can't understand why people are acting the way they do. The brain gives them an answer, because they're all against you and trying to kill you. Ah, that's called paranoia, but it's a relief from that conflict. You now know why. And sometimes it's schizophrenia, or as it's known today, bipolar, that's a current thing of, it used to be hyperinsulinism, but now it's bipolar. I, I thought of that looking at the table over here. There's a table that says committee with eight empty chairs. <laughs> My brain could fill them. There's a committee in there, all, what do you think we ought to do? I don't know, let's get out of here. I'm not sure, what do you think, you know? But what is, that particular thing is called psychosis. If it's just a narrow thing, it might never come up in the world. Sometimes it's a little bit more. That's why you read in the paper about these people. Gee, he was a good guy, and he seemed to be a good neighbor. But just this one day, he got upset and cut his wife up and put her in the meat grinder. You know, we never thought he'd do that. When you get in sufficient, sufficient intensity, that conflict, that psychosis shows up. If you have a lot of psychosis, you go to the mental hospital. But psychosis is really... a the effort of the brain to protect itself against disintegration. Now, here's an interesting thing. Alcoholics almost never become psychotic. Isn't that odd? The cases of alcoholics becoming psychotic are just almost invisible. You would think that would be the number one cause. Don't they say all the time, well, alcoholism is the second greatest cause of insanity? But not from psychosis. Alcoholic insanity is something entirely different. We call it a wet brain, but it really isn't. It's something exactly the opposite. I'm sure everyone in this room who's ever got drunk knows that you can wake up in the morning sometimes with a terrible thirst or a desire to put the fire out, as we say. <laughs> because alcohol is the only substance I know, only fluid, that takes moisture out of the body. And you could really dry your body out. In fact, it kills cells all over the body. And if you drink fluids, it, re it revives the cells. There's only two organs in the body where when the cells die, they never get better. One is the liver, one is the brain. That's why we have cirrhosis of the liver. That's why the brain starts to go. But eventually, if you drink long enough and hard enough, and it varies from body to body, it takes a lot of drinking. But eventually, your brain dries up much of it. Now, you have millions and millions of cells. But when you get alcoholic insanity, that doesn't mean you're sitting in a meeting acting crazy or sitting home wondering, ha, ha, ha. What it means is you're sitting in a ward somewhere 
and people come and change your diapers three times a day and feed you and put you to bed and get you up and feed you and change your diapers and you can never get better. And you said, like, but your body's healthy. You can stay like that for 50 years. Families come down every so often to see if dad knows them. He doesn't have any idea what the hell they are. So they cry and go home. That's what alcoholic insanity is. But psychosis, is, alcoholics almost never become psychotic. Do you know why? Because when the problems get bad enough, long enough, they drink alcohol. And it changes their perception of reality. It alters them to the world around them. So that immediately asks you, why, Jesus, why don't, why don't all these other people do that? And they do. But it doesn't change their perception of reality. That's what makes an alcoholic. So what we think is such a strange thing is a lifesaver for us. It costs our sanity, but it's a life-saving device. I can, our book talks about it, it's just a book of observation. It says, there seems to be a point at which there is no adequate defense against the first drink. That is because I am drinking to preserve my sanity. Doesn't that sound weird, drinking to preserve your sanity when we know it'll make us insane? But it'll change my perception of reality. And so, eventually, if I do that long enough, <clears throat> I've lost much of my ability to cope with the conflicts of reality. And one day, drinking is a problem. <clears throat> Now I'm going to get sober, and I'm surprised to discover sobriety is unbearable. And so I got a drink, but I can't keep drinking because drinking becomes unbearable. So then I got to get sober, but I can't stay sober because sobriety is unbearable. And you go in AA, and they have these things they want you to do, turn your life over to God when you're bitter and cynical and lost, you know, just nonsense. And so I drink one more time and get sober. And that condition is called alcoholism. And there's never been any adequate answer to it. There's only been really one, there's two answers, one. One Alcoholics Anonymous, one 150 years ago. Most of you know about the Washingtonians who had an organization much like AA, started by drunkards helping drunkards. And they just grew like wildfire. After a couple of years, they had almost a thousand members. After five years and their speakers out, they had a hundred thousand sober drunkards in America and that's without radios or phones or anything, just one to one. And their perception of the alcoholism was that, well we can get use this to get ourselves drunk or sober, we should be able to help all sorts of people with all sorts of problems. So they began to help narcotics addicts who were not drunkards, they began to help people with uh, emotional problems, They great many of them wanted to stamping out of alcohol sales and prohibition. Some got active in, in legal work. Some got active in trying to help annex Texas, get rid of slavery, all sorts of things. And three years later, the entire Ox Washington movement was extinct. And with the exception of very few people, they all died drunk on the street. And they couldn't understand why. There was a book written in 1961 by one of his few survivors. Says, we were doing so well, we all stopped drinking and we decided to help other people and pretty soon, pardon me, people stopped coming to our meetings and pretty soon they got one by one, they wouldn't come around and now they're all dead. Why is that? He didn't know. We know now because as a matter of fact, it's something to remember. <clears throat> in 1942, 43, 44, AA was coming down from its big surge from the readers serving post and Bill Wilson was sitting in New York getting letters from all over the country complaining that AA was dying off. 
and there were battles, terrible battles going on. You know, the Akron AA the, uh, kind of stuff with the Oxford group, the LA wouldn't even write to those people because they're a bunch of religious fanatics. But Chicago AA would not talk to Bill Wilson, New York people, because they thought they were just away from the religious concepts, would only talk to Akron. And all over the country, people were fighting and arguing and getting drunk. And Bill Wilson realized that uh, AA was dying and he didn't know what to do about it. And he got a letter from some guy in North Carolina, an article for this new magazine they're starting called The Grapevine, which was about this big. And he said that he announced about something called the Washingtonian. And Bill Wilson had never heard of it, this most successful thing. And he looked it up, looked it up and found about it and said, my God, they had the same problems we're having in many areas. And he said, in an effort to save Alcoholics Anonymous, desperation, he wrote the 12 Traditions based on the Washingtonians and on AA's history. A lot of people think, well, they just came out at the same time, the steps are, they didn't. Thousands more died before they got to the Traditions. And then he issued, he gave the Traditions one by one in the, in the grapevine. And of course, Alcoholics Anonymous has only had one major fault. It's full of alcoholics. <laughs> and they didn't want to accept these damn old traditions. Hey, Bill, we don't want any laws. We're here for love, goddammit. Yeah. And so Bill Wilson took his wife two or three years in a row, traveled around the country in his motorcycle, tried to tell people about the traditions. They didn't want to hear it. In fact, they asked him to speak. Bill, you can come and speak at our group, but don't mention the traditions. I mean, that's how tough it was. And so Bill and Dr. Bob got together and decided to do, uh, maybe we could just get these warring factions together once. So they, got, they finally set up a little meeting in Cleveland, Ohio, 1950, July. It was the first time a large group of sober alcoholics had ever sat down in the history of the world. And they had the first convention. They thought it was going to be the only convention. Dr. Bob talked, gave a great talk. And uh, six young guys gave me two traditions, got up and discussed what these traditions were, why they're for. I have the tapes of that meeting. It's fascinating me. Quality's bad, but you can hear it. And uh, point out they weren't rules, there were no laws, there was no enforcement of laws, it was to save your life. And they begrudgingly voted him in. And in 1961, they, uh, 1951, in the next printing of the book, it's the first time they ever appeared in print in our literature. But A grew very, very <clears throat> slowly. And it grew because little by little, the perceptions of alcoholics began to change. And then in the late 1960s, a new phenomenon came along the treatment centers. And there, there's a lot of federal money eventually went into the treatment, helping treatment centers, getting people sober, and a lot of insurance companies. That was the thing to do, help alcoholics by putting them in treatment. And uh, that went on for some years. In Canada, they had a program. Anybody in Canada, or at least the province of Alberta, who was a drunkard, could go anywhere in the world for treatment, and the government would pay for it. Christ, they all came to Los Angeles. <laughs> Talk about hell, eh? <laughs> they, had a, they had a lasso, some of them, to take them back. You're, you're going back to Canada. No, no, I make you drunk again, you know. There's still some, still some there. But the treatment centers, and that created a whole new bucket of worms because uh, it turned out that the treatment centers weren't very effective. And yet there were treatment Every, the old timers today, the ones I knew, all hated treatment centers. Treatment centers are a bunch of bums, come on! 
Go to the lady, go to the program, get the steps and stay sober. But a lot of people went to treatment. Some stayed sober and some didn't. And after a while, you know, you wonder why would that be? And of course, it gets back to another point, the uh, perception of alcoholism. One of the great problems in the treatment centers is that they would bring in doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists, and they felt if we can treat these people successfully, they will not need all that amateur AA stuff. And they did, and they killed a lot of people. And yet there were other treatment centers who weren't doing that. I remember a number of years ago I was giving a talk, I was trying to explain to the best of my ability the difference between good treatment centers and bad treatment centers. And I used an analogy that I still like a little bit. But, you know, you can't blame people for going to treatment centers. It's like going down to the beach in Santa Monica, and I want to go to Catalina. It's beyond the horizon, I can't see it. And there's a little, a little boat, a little yacht, with people in white uniforms saying, come on with us to the SS Treatment Center. And there's lovely smells of food wafting out of the galley, and it looks very nice, everything's fine. Well, I said, okay, let me see what else is going. You walk down here, there's some two guys in the tall grass saying, you want to come with us? we got an invisible boat. <laughs> I don't think so, Jim. Nobody's got any sense to get the treatment center. And they do exactly what they say. They dry you off, they feed you, they educate you, they do you well. But they just got to sight of shore and they say, well, this is as far as we go. We have to turn back now and get some more. Well, what am I supposed to do? You're in good shape. Swim like a bitch. <laughs> and you swim. <laughs> and you almost drown. And here comes these two boobs buying their invisible boat. You want a ride, pal? I'm not that sick, for Christ's sake. <laughs> and you swim some more. And you almost die. And here they come again. You want, you want a ride? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they put you in the boat. As you dry off, you realize you're floating in midair. There's no boat here. What do you want me to do? Grab an oar and row. Oh, you crazy bastards. <laughs> and you row some more, and finally they pick you up one more time. Put you, what do you want me to do? Row. <laughs> and as you row an invisible boat with an invisible oar, the boat slowly appears, little by little. And eventually the boat, solid and better than any this yacht by far, don't even want to go to Catalina. Just want to stay on the boat. Or occasionally people like named sponsors come by and say things like, you got your oar upside down. Oh. <laughs> and you row, and we all row and go somewhere. And the irony of it is, of course, if you stop rowing long enough, the boat starts to disappear again. And a great many people have drowned who used to be on a big, successful boat, I'll tell you. But the, uh, that's the whole concept. Now, what's the difference between a good treatment center and a bad treatment center? Well, a bad treatment center leads you to believe that you can swim once you're well. And the good treatment center says, we've got you cleaned up, but when you get in that water, look for the guys in the invisible boat and jump in and roll like hell, because that's the only chance you got, and it's the only chance people have to this day. Because you know in America, where we have so much sobriety, what, hundreds, thousands of people at this convention, there's people all over in every state, every city, you can't go to a town without a meeting. It's estimated still that about 95% of alcoholics die drunk, or as a direct result of drinking. And any large group of alcoholics, you could assume that 20% of them in this room are going to die drunk, and hard deaths, and not because there isn't an answer, but because the enemy is in here who says you don't need it, there's another way. 
the perception of alcoholism is so, so remarkable. And I, we, after we know better, we can say, well, I'm okay now. I don't need that because this is a, this is the most peculiar illness. It's been described as it and cancer as the two major suicide diseases of mankind. Cancer is suicidal because it attacks you and your body says, oh, it's not an enemy, let's help it. And they bring food to it and bring food from other good cells. And malignant cancer must be cut out or burned out because any of it's left in there, the body will wave it back to health and make it consume itself. And what saves cancer patients is the brain realizes something's wrong and goes for help. And if in time, that can often be taken care of. In alcoholism, it's very similar, but it's almost exactly this different, opposite. The body fights back against it. The body fights back against it as much as possible. You know, we don't even think of it that way. We say, well, my body wanted more. Your body will not let you destroy it if it can help it. Example, when your body gets sufficiently toxified, it will set up a series of involuntary physiological reflexes called reversed paralysis, peristalsis. We describe that in our circles as puking a lot, you know. <laughs> I'm sure there's nobody in this room who hasn't knelt in front of the old porcelain altar in the morning and said your morning prayer, you know. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> you don't even realize your body's trying to help you. Stop helping me. Yeah. Some mornings your body will reduce toxicity from both ends at once. <laughs> Which is good for your body, but it's hell on your nerves, you know. <laughs> You got to make a series of split second decisions. <laughs> Every answer must be correct. <laughs> and if you have any loved ones left, they give you support by saying, Why'd you go over to her house and crap on the floor? <laughs> it's not easy. But the enemy here is the brain. The brain keeps telling you it isn't, the, it isn't as bad as it looks. Your case is different. You need it. You need it. Because little by little, people like us become hopeless without ever finding out there's an answer. And once you find out the answer is such a simple thing, you wonder why you could never accept it. So the great help of people like me, and I suppose like you, is desperation. Because I must overcome my own brain in order to stay sober. I must overcome my own perception of reality to stay sober. The desperation will override that. To come to realize I do not suffer from a drinking problem, I do not suffer from a psychiatric problem, I do not suffer from anything finite. I suffer from a combination of these and other factors called alcoholism. And that takes a while to come to realize. So I have to, usually, people like us have to act against our brain for a while before we come to believe it. And that's why it's such a vital thing that we continue to gather together with other alcoholics of our type. You know, last June, they had a special on Alcoholics Anonymous on television, on A&E. And I was one of the interviewees, and, and I, uh, you couldn't, they blocked us out, you couldn't be seen and so on. But the guy who was interviewing me asked me a very impressive, important question before we went on the air. He said, if Alcoholics Anonymous works, why is it that the, uh, some people who are alcoholics don't have to go to AA and they stay sober. And that's true. Some people don't. And we know, most of us know people like that. And it's a hard thing to understand.
but it's always been that way. And Bill Wilson, when he wrote this book, knew that too. He didn't understand why, but he knew it. So again and again in our book, he describes alcoholics of our type, of our type. Of, he doesn't tell what other types are, but of our type. Because our type of alcoholic are not people who suffer from drinking. They suffer from drinking. We suffer from something that, in which sobriety is worse than drinking. And so we cannot stop drinking. It's not going to make it better for us. And he also said, why is it if AA works so well, how come, uh, how come people don't stay sober? People, a lot of people don't, don't stay sober. That's true. If we had these, these two tables here, all newcomers tonight, this afternoon, and they all had the same sponsor and went to the same meetings. In a few weeks, a couple would be gone, and then a couple more. Maybe at the end of the year, you'd have three or four still getting a birthday cake. And he, sometimes the ones you did, everything would be here or here, and the ones that you hoped would go away, stay. <laughs> you get to love them later. But, I mean, <laughs> but why is that, if AA works? As that goes back to that same thing. My perception tells me this can't work for me, and I'm not going to do it. My perception tells me I don't have to do what these things people do. And number one, my perception tells me my case is different. And there isn't a person in this room who hasn't had that feeling and will have it again and again. And the next time you get terribly cross and upset, you're going to have that feeling come back. My case, I'm not even sure this A crap even works for people like me. And if you usually can survive it if you're active in A because you have places to go and things to do, people to talk to. But I think that's what... Uh, that's what we have to come to understand, that to this day, after 7,000 years, there's only been two effective periods where sober people, alcoholics of our type, have ever stayed sober. And one was in 1840 to 1848, and they're all dead drunk, and the other one is now. And today in AA, where it seems so easy once you're in it, and it's still hard to remember you look at the first edition of the big book, that big red book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and the stories in the back, great stories of recovery, most of those people died drunk. Most of the people in the second printing of the book died drunk. Most of the people in the third printing of the book died drunk. Why? Because they didn't work? No, they thought, I'm okay now, I don't need to do it. My perception is recovered. But the, one of the hallmarks of our illness, I guess, is left to its own devices, my perception will start to go again. My perception will start to vary a little bit, will start to veer a little bit. And eventually the same things will look different. And you say, well, how could that be? Well, we all, we all see that every day. There isn't a person in this room who can guarantee me how you're going to feel when you wake up tomorrow morning, whether you're going to feel good or bad or optimistic or cross. That's just a part of life. And if you allow yourself to buy into those things and forget what we have here, Little by little, you can go. It is, you don't go from AA like this, boom. It goes just an inch at a time. And eventually, you're over there. That's why it's so essential that we continue to share our experience, strength, and hope. That's the great reason for meetings. You know, originally, meetings were set up, meetings of alcoholics and were not set up to help the older members so that new people could be brought somewhere and they could prove to them there are sober alcoholics. Because people always say, you know, we'll get you sober, but they weren't. They'd bring them here. But over the years, it's evolved into something entirely different. Still a great place to bring newcomers. But it's a place for you and me to come to understand the nature of our illness and sustain that belief, even when our mind tells us we no longer need it. 
and to maintain the principles in the steps, traditions. None of us are going to do it very well. I think the great saving force of AA is that paragraph that says no one among us is going to be able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles because we're all flawed people. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all emotional. I remember the one time I thought I might have risen above that in 1970, I spoke at the International Convention in Miami Beach, and I was thrilled because the first speaker that morning was the guy that took me to my first meeting in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, 1949. The last speaker that night was Chuck Chamberlain, who was my current sponsor. Bill Wilson was scheduled to give his last talk ever at that convention. And I came home from that convention, and God, I, I had a spiritual transformation. Twelve years sober. I was working in an advertising agency. I'm going to change my life. I'm no longer going to be controversial. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to judge anyone. I'm going to just love everybody. <laughs> and I got out. It can't happen. You know, it's called a spiritual experience. And I got to the freeway that morning, <clears throat> out by the ocean, driving to downtown. And I kind of had my rear view mirror set so I could see my see the road, but I want to see a little bit of me too. Could I? <laughs> I'd never seen myself transformed. <laughs> and I went under the San Diego freeway, continue on, and some little lady, lady in a Toyota came off the San Diego freeway, just <clears throat> and missed me by about a sixteenth of an inch. I mean, I was almost killed, just right there. And the new spiritual leader of the Western States had his window down saying, You crazy bitch for Christ's sake! I thought, well, I'll go to a couple more meetings. <laughs> and I haven't been able to regain, regain that feeling since. <clears throat> but I think the, uh, the ultimate remembrance of why we do these things, why we go to AA, why we take these actions, why we try to help others, which, of course, is the number one thing, goes back to that 1950 convention that I talked to you about where they read the traditions. Dr. Bob was dying of cancer. And they said, you probably won't want to do talk, Dr. Bob, because you're so old and sick and dying. He said, oh, no, I have to talk. He said, I, I'm next to Bill. I'm the only oldest sober person in the world. And it's necessary. i, I got to share. So that morning, that afternoon, they, two guys helped us tall, cancer-ridden, gaunt, sick man to the podium. And he gave a talk, which some people believe, myself included, is the Gettysburg Address of Alcoholics Anonymous. He started off kind of innocuously, said, welcome to Cleveland. I hope that you uh, will go home and tell the boys and girls there what we found here, what we're doing. We're all in the same battle. We're trying to keep get people, divergent facts, forced together was the point of the op operation. He said, I'm, I'm glad that some small action I took a number of years ago, by which you've been getting sober, helped bring this about because that was the largest group of sober alcoholics in the history of the world at that time. And he said, I, I want to apologize for my illness. I've been a little sicker than I thought I'd be a bit in bed a lot the last few months. He said, but I do want to say a few things. I, I, I'd be indeed remiss if I didn't say a few things. Then he said these few sentences, which to me are the, the gist of it all. He said, let us remember to keep our program simple. Let us not louse it all up with Freudian complexes, which may be of interest to the scientists, but have nothing to do with our work here. Our work here, when reduced to the last, consists of love and service. And we all know what love is, and we all know what service is. 
And he said, secondly, let us guard that erring member, the tongue, and try to use it with kindness and understanding. And there isn't a person in this room or any room like it in the world that does know exactly what he's talking about. We're all very pleasant and kindly when things are going our way and things are good. But if we're threatened or someone hurts our feelings or we're cross, cut, slash, cut, slash, criticize, assassinate. He said, finally, let us never ever be too busy to help the man behind us. To give him a pat on the back when he needs it. To take him occasionally to a meeting. Because none of us would be here if someone hadn't done it for us. He said, never, let us never reach that stage of smug complacency where we are too busy to help our fellow alcoholic. Then he said a few more things in closing and sat down and was dead shortly thereafter. But that really is the continuing message we have here. We have a continuing message of surrender at first, then intermittent continual surrender. I was like that idea of surrender. We talk about surrender. And I used to think that meant an old timer coming in or as a newcomer saying, I'm throwing the towel in. I surrender. <laughs> but that isn't the way it is in the real world. We all throw the towel in, but then we inch it back first chance we get. And then you spend the rest of your natural life tearing off small strips and see if that'll satisfy them. <laughs> but we have a surrender as do people. And we come here and we get in some degree of emotional stability. We maintain that stability by working with others to get our focus off ourself, to, to live little by little, to learn to live in reality, which for the history of mankind, no alcoholic has ever been able to do, alcoholic of our type, to any degree at all. And here we are in a room. There are more sober alcoholics in this room than there were in America in 1940. And here we are, we just take it for granted. So what? So what? So your job and mine is about the same. I must keep my perception of Alcoholics Anonymous the same. And some days it won't be that way, so I'll continue to take the action until the perception comes back. I must keep my perception of, the, of a power greater than myself as a loving force, not someone who's going to destroy me. And to keep my perception of my own role in the world is to do what? Keep this program simple, watch my stinking tongue, help alcoholics some degree of service, and live in thankful contemplation of him who presides over us all. Thank you. Thank you.